be sure to follow Send Me to Sleep on your preferred podcast player so you never miss an episode and a good night's rest. Welcome to Send Me to Sleep, the place to find a good night's rest. My name's Andrew, and I'm so pleased you've joined us tonight and taken this time for yourself to ensure you get a peaceful night's sleep. Tonight, I'll be reading Emily Klein's Chapter 22, Love Me, Love My Dog. In the last chapter, Aunt Ruth had taken Emily's side and dispelled the unsavory rumors that had been spread about her. In this chapter, Emily has an aggravating interview with a homecoming Shrewsbury journalist. If you haven't already, find a nice place to get cozy. Take a deep, relaxing breath. And settle your body in whatever way feels most comfortable. Now all you'll need to do is follow the sound of my voice. So let your eyes fall heavy and your breath soften as we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. Chapter 22 Love Me, Love My Dog When Shrewsbury people discovered that Mrs. Dutton was backing her niece, the flame of gossip that had swept over the town died down in an incredibly short time. Mrs. Dutton gave more to the various funds of St. John's Church than any other member. It was a Murray tradition to support your church becomingly. Mrs. Dutton had lent money to half the businessmen in town. She held Nat Tolliver's note for an amount that kept him wakeful of nights. Mrs. Dutton had a disconcerting knowledge of family skeletons to which she had no delicacy in referring. Therefore, Mrs. Dutton was a person to be kept in good humour, and if people had made the mistake of supposing that because she was very strict with her niece, it was safe to snub that niece, why, the sooner they corrected that mistake, the better for all concerned. Emily sold baby jackets and blankets and booties and bonnets in Mrs. Tolliver's stall at the Big Bazaar, and wielded elderly gentlemen into buying them with her now famous smile. Everybody was nice to her, and she was happy again, though the experience had left a scar. Shrewsbury folk in after years said that Emily Starr had never really forgiven them for having talked about her, 
and added that the Murrays never did forgive. But forgiveness did not enter into the matter. Emily had suffered so horribly that henceforth the sight of anyone who had been connected with her suffering was hateful to her. When Mrs. Tolliver asked her, a week later, to pour tea at the reception she was giving her cousin, Emily declined politely, without troubling herself to give any excuse. And something in the tilt of her chin, or in the level glance of her eyes, made Mrs. Tolliver feel to her marrow that she was still Polly Riordan of Riordan Alley, and would never be anyone else in the sight of a Murray of New Moon. But Andrew was welcomed quite sweetly when he somewhat sheepishly called the following Friday night. It may be that he felt a little doubtful of his reception, in spite of the fact that he was sealed of the tribe. But Emily was markedly gracious to him. Perhaps she had her own reasons for it. Again, I call attention to the fact that I am Emily's biographer, not her apologist. If she took away to get even with Andrew, which I may not approve, what can I do but deplore it? For my own satisfaction, however, I may remark in passing that I do think Emily went too far when she told Andrew, after his report of some compliments his manager had paid him, that he was certainly a wonder. I cannot even excuse her by saying that she spoke in sarcastic tones. She did not. She said it most sweetly, with an upward glance, followed by a downward one, that made even Andrew's well-regulated heart skip a beat. Oh, Emily, Emily. Things went well with Emily that spring. She had several acceptances and checks, and was beginning to plume herself on being quite a literary person. Her clan began to take her scribbling mania somewhat seriously. Checks were unanswerable things. Emily has made fifty dollars by her pen since New Year's, Aunt Ruth told Mrs. Drury. I begin to think the child has an easy way of making a living. An easy way, Emily, overhearing this as she went through the hall, smiled and sighed. What did Aunt Ruth, what did anyone know of the disappointments and failures of the climber of the Alpine path? What did she know of the despairs and agonies of one who sees but cannot reach? What did she know of the bitterness of one who conceives a wonderful tale and writes it down, only to find a flat and flavorless manuscript as a reward for all her toil? 
What did she know of barred doors and impregnable editorial sanctums? Of brutal rejection slips and the awfulness of faint praise? Of hopes deferred and hours of sickening doubt and self-distrust? Aunt Ruth knew of none of these things, but she took to having fits of indignation when Emily's manuscripts were returned. Impudence, I call it, she said. Don't send that editor another line. Remember, you're a Murray. I'm afraid he doesn't know that, said Emily gravely. Then why don't you tell him, said Aunt Ruth. Shrewsbury had a mild sensation in May when Janet Royal came home from New York with her wonderful dresses, her brilliant reputation, and her chow dog. Janet was a Shrewsbury girl, but she had never been home since she had gone to the States twenty years ago. She was clever and ambitious and she had succeeded. She was the literary editor of a big metropolitan women's magazine and one of the readers for a noted publishing house. Emily held her breath when she heard of Miss Royal's arrival. Oh, if she could only see her, have a talk with her, ask her about a hundred things she wanted to know. When Mr. Towers told her, in an offhand manner, to go and interview Miss Royal and write it up for the Times, Emily trembled between terror and delight. Here was her excuse. But could she? Had she assurance enough? Wouldn't Miss Royal think her unbearably presumptuous? How could she ask Miss Royal questions about her career and her opinion of the state's foreign policy and reciprocity? She could never have the courage. We both worship at the same altar, but she is high priestess and I am only the humblest acolyte, wrote Emily in her journal. Then she indicted a very worshipful letter to Miss Royal and rewrote it a dozen times, asking permission to interview her. After she had mailed it, she could not sleep all night because it occurred to her that she should have signed herself yours truly instead of yours sincerely. Yours sincerely smacked of an acquaintanceship that did not exist. Miss Royal would surely think her presuming. But Miss Royal sent back a charming letter. Emily has it to this day. Ashburn, Monday. Dear Miss Starr, Of course you may come and see me 
and I'll tell you everything you want to know for Jimmy Towers. God rest his soul, and wasn't he my first beau? And everything you want to know for yourself. I think half my reasons for coming back to P.E.I. this spring was because I wanted to see the writer of The Woman Who Spanked the King. I think half my reasoning for coming back to P.I. this spring was because I wanted to see the writer of The Woman Who Spanked the King. I read it last winter when it came out in the Roches, and I thought it was charming. Come and tell me all about yourself and your ambitions. You are ambitious, aren't you? And I think you're going to be able to realize your ambitions too. And I want to help you if I can. You've got something I never had. Real creative ability. But I've heaps of experience. And what I've learned from it is yours for the taking. I can help you to avoid some snares and pitfalls and I'm not without a bit of pull in certain quarters. Come to Ashburn next Friday afternoon when school's out, and we'll have a heart-to-heart powwow. Yours fraternally, Janet Royal. Emily thrilled to the ends of her toes when she read this letter. Yours fraternally, Oh, heavenly. She knelt at her window and looked out with rapturous eyes into the slender firs of the land of uprightness and the dewy young clover fields beyond. Oh, was it possible that some day she would be a brilliant, successful woman like Miss Royal? That letter made it seem possible made every wonderful dream seem possible. And on Friday, four more days, she was going to see and talk intimately with her high priestess. Mrs. Angela Royal, who called to see Aunt Ruth that evening, didn't exactly seem to think Janet Royal a high priestess or a wonder. But then... Of course, a prophetess is apt to have scant honour in her own country, and Mrs. Royal had brought Janet up. I don't say but what she's got on well, she confided to Aunt Ruth. She gets a big salary, but she's an old maid for all that, and as odd in some ways as Dick's hat band. Emily, studying Latin in the bay window, went on fire with indignation. This was nothing short of les majestés. She is very fine looking yet, said Aunt Ruth. Janet was always a nice girl. Oh yes, she's nice enough but I was always afraid she was too clever to get married, 
and I was right. And she's full of foreign notions. She's never on time for her meals, and it really makes me sick the fuss she makes over that dog of hers. Chu Chin, she calls it. He rules the house. He does exactly as he likes, and nobody dare say a word. My poor cat can't call her soul her own. Janet is so touchy about him. When I complained about him sleeping on the plush Davenport, she was so vexed she wouldn't speak for a day. That's a thing I don't like about Janet. She gets so high and mighty when she's offended. And she gets offended at things nobody else would dream of minding. And when she's offended with one, she's offended with everybody. I hope nothing will upset her before you come on Friday, Emily. If she's out of humour, she'll visit it on you. But I will say for her that she doesn't often get vexed, and there's nothing mean or grudging about her. She'd work her fingers to the bone to serve a friend. When Aunt Ruth had gone out to interview the grocer's boy, Mrs. Royal added hurriedly, She's greatly interested in you, Emily. She's always fond of having pretty, fresh girls about her. Says it keeps her feeling young. She thinks your work shows real talent. If she takes a fancy to you, it would be a great thing for you. But, for pity's sake, keep on good terms with that chow. If you offend him, Janet wouldn't have anything to do with you, supposing you were Shakespeare himself. Emily awoke Friday morning with the conviction that this was to be one of the crucial days of her life. A day of dazzling possibilities. She had had a terrible dream of sitting spellbound before Miss Royal, unable to utter one word except Chu Chin, which she repeated parrot-like whenever Miss Royal asked her a question. It poured rain all the forenoon, much to her dismay, but at noon it cleared up brilliantly and the hills across the harbour scarfed themselves in fairy blue. Emily hurried home from school, pale with the solemnity of the occasion. Her toilet was an important rite. She must wear her new navy blue silk. No question about that. It was positively long and made her look fully grown up. But how should she do her hair? The psych knot had more distinction, suited her profile, and showed to better advantage under her hat. Besides, perhaps a bare forehead made her look more intellectual. 
but Mrs. Royal had said that Miss Royal liked pretty girls. Pretty, therefore, she must be at all costs. The rich black hair was dressed low on her forehead and crowned by the new spring hat which Emily had dared to buy with her last check. In spite of Aunt Elizabeth's disapproval and Aunt Ruth's unvarnished statement that a fool and her money were soon parted. But Emily was glad now that she had bought the hat. She couldn't have gone to interview Miss Royal in her plain black sailor. This hat was very becoming, with its cascade of purple violets that fell from over its lovely, unbroken waves of hair, just touching the milk-whiteness of her neck. Everything about her was exquisitely neat and dainty. She looked, I like the old phrase, as if she had just stepped from a bandbox. Aunt Ruth, prowling about the hall, saw her coming downstairs and realized, with something of a shock, that Emily was a young woman. She carries herself like a Murray, thought Aunt Ruth. The force of commendation could go no further, though it was really from the stars that Emily had inherited her slim elegance. The Murrays were stately and dignified, but stiff. It was quite a little walk to Ashburn, which was a fine old white house set far back from the street amid the great trees. Emily went up the gravel walk, edged with its fine fringed shadows of spring, as a worshipper approaching a sacred fane. A fairly large, fluffy white dog was sitting halfway up the gravel walk. Emily looked at him curiously. She had never seen a chow dog. She decided that Chu Chin was handsome, but not clean. He had evidently been having a glorious time in some mud puddle, for his paws and breast were reeking. Emily hoped he would approve of her, but keep his distance. Evidently, he approved of her, for he turned and trotted up the walk with her, amiably waving a plumy tail, or rather, a tail that would have been plumy had it not been wet and muddy. He stood expectantly beside her while she rang the bell, and as soon as the door was opened, he made a joyous bound on the lady who stood within almost knocking her over. Miss Royal herself had opened the door. She had, as Emily saw at once, no beauty, but unmistakable distinction from the crown of her gold bronze hair to the toes of her satin slippers. 
She was arrayed in some marvellous dress of mauve velvet, and she wore pince-nez with tortoise-shell rims, the first of their kind to be seen in Shrewsbury. Chu Chin gave one rapturous, slobbery wipe at her face with his tongue, then rushed on to Mrs. Royal's parlour. The beautiful mauve dress was spotted from collar to hem with muddy paw marks. Emily thought that Chu Chin fully deserved Mrs. Royal's bad opinion, and mentally remarked that if he were her dog, he should behave better. But Miss Royal did not reprove of him in any way, and perhaps Emily's secret criticism was subconsciously prompted by her instant perception that Miss Royal's greeting, while perfectly courteous, was very cold. From her letter, Emily had somehow expected a warmer reception. Won't you come in and sit down, said Miss Royal. She ushered Emily in, waved to a comfortable chair, and sat down on a stiff and uncompromising Chippendale one. Somehow, Emily, sensitive at all times and abnormally so just now, felt that Miss Royal's selection of chair was ominous. Why hadn't she sunk chummily into the depths of the big velvet Morris? But there she sat, a stately, aloof figure, having apparently paid not the slightest attention to the appalling mudstains on her beautiful dress. Chu Chin had jumped on the big plush Davenport, where he sat, cockily looking from one to the other, as if enjoying the situation. It was all too evident that, as Mrs. Royal had foreboded, something had upset Miss Royal, and Emily's heart suddenly sank like lead. It's a lovely day, she faltered. She knew it was an incredibly stupid thing to say, but she had to say something when Mrs. Royal wouldn't say anything. The silence was too awful. Very lovely, agreed Miss Royal, not looking at Emily at all, but at Chu Chin, who was thumping a beautiful silk and lace cushion of Mrs. Royal's with his wet tail. Emily hated Chu Chin. It was a relief to hate him, since as yet she did not dare to hate Miss Royal. But she wished herself a thousand miles away. Oh, if she only hadn't that little bundle of manuscripts on her lap. It was so evident what it was. She would never dare to show one of them to Miss Royal. Was this outraged Empress the writer of that kind, friendly letter? It was impossible to believe it. This must be a nightmare. Her dream was out with a vengeance. 
she felt crude and bread and buttery and ignorant and dowdy and young. Oh, so horribly young. The moments passed, not so very many, perhaps, but seeming like hours to Emily. Her mouth was dry and parched, her brain paralyzed. She couldn't think of a solitary thing to say. A horrible suspicion flashed across her mind that, since writing her letter, Miss Royal had heard the gossip about the night in the old John house, and that her altered attitude was the result. In her misery, Emily squirmed in her chair, and her little packet of manuscripts slipped to the floor. Emily stooped to retrieve it. At the same moment, Chu Chin made a flying leap from the Davenport at it. His muddy paws caught the spray of violets hanging from Emily's hat and tore it loose. Emily let go of her packet and clutched her hat. Chu Chin let go of the violets and pounced on the packet. Then, holding that in his mouth, he bolted out of the open glass door leading to the garden. Oh, what a relief it would be to tear my hair, thought Emily violently. That diabolical chow had carried off her latest and best story and a number of choice poems. Heaven knew what he would do with them. She supposed she would never see them again. There was fortunately now no question of showing them to Miss Royal. Emily no longer cared whether Miss Royal was in a bad humour or not. She was no longer desirous of pleasing her. A woman who would let her dog behave like that to an invited guest and never reprove him. Nay, she even seemed to be amused at his antics. Emily was sure she had detected a fleeting smile on Miss Royal's arrogant face as she looked at the ruined violets scattered over the floor. There suddenly popped into Emily's mind a story she had heard of Lofty John's father, who was in the habit of telling his wife. When people do be after snubbing you, Bridget, pull up your lip. Bridget, pull up your lip. Emily pulled up her lip. A very playful dog, she said sarcastically. Very, agreed Miss Royal composedly. Don't you think a little discipline would improve him? asked Emily. No, I do not think so, said Miss Royal meditatively. Chu Chin returned at this moment, capered about the room, knocked a small glass vase off a tabaret with a whisk of his tail, sniffed at the ensuing fragments, 
then bounded up on the Davenport again, where he sat panting. Oh, what a good dog am I. Emily picked up her notebook and pencil. Mr. Towers has sent me to interview you, she said. So I understand, said Miss Royal, never taking her eyes off her worshipped chow. Emily, may I trouble you to answer a few questions? Miss Royal, with exaggerated amiability, charmed. Chu Chin, having saved enough breath, springs from the Davenport and rushes through the half-opened folding doors of the dining room. Emily, consulting notebook and recklessly asking the first question jotted down therein. What do you think will be the result of the presidential election this fall? Emily, with compressed lips, writes down in her notebook. She never thinks about it. Chu Chin reappears, darts through the parlor and out into the garden, carrying a roast chicken in his mouth. Miss Royal. There goes my supper. Emily, checking off first questions. Is there any likelihood that the United States Congress will look favorably on the recent reciprocity proposals of the Canadian government? Miss Royal, is the Canadian government making reciprocity proposals? I never heard of them. Emily writes, she never heard of them. Miss Royal refits her pince-nez. Emily thinks. With a chin and a nose like that, you'll look very witch-like when you grow old. Says, Is it your opinion that the historical novel has had its day? Miss Royal, languidly. I always leave my opinions at home when I take a holiday. Emily writes, she always leaves her opinions at home when she takes a holiday, and wishes savagely she could write her own description of this interview, but knows Mr. Towers wouldn't print it. Then consoles herself by remembering that she had a virgin Jimmy book at home, and takes a wicked delight in thinking of the account that she will write in that night. Chu Chin enters. Emily wonders if he could have eaten the chicken in that short time. Chu Chin, evidently feeling the need of some dessert, helps himself to one of Mrs. Royal's crocheted tidies, crawls under the piano with it, and falls to chewing rapturously. Miss Royal, fervently. Dear dog, Emily, suddenly inspired. What do you think of chow dogs? 
Miss Royal. The most adorable creatures in the world. Emily to herself. So you've brought one opinion with you. To Miss Royal. I do not admire them. Miss Royal, with an icy smile. It is evident that your taste in dogs must be quite different from mine. Emily to herself. I wish Ilsa were here to call you names for me. A large, motherly grey cat passes across the doorstep outside. Chu Chin bolts out from under the piano, shoots between the legs of a tall plant stand, and pursues the flying cat. The plant stand has gone over with a crash and Mrs. Royal's beautiful Rex begonias lie in ruins on the floor, amid a heap of earth and broken pottery. Miss Royal, unsympathetically. Poor Aunt Angela, her heart will be broken. Emily. But that doesn't matter, does it? Miss Royal, gently. Oh, no, not at all. Emily, consulting notebook. Do you find many changes in Shrewsbury? Miss Royal. I find a good many changes in the people. The younger generation does not impress me favorably. Emily writes this down. Chu Chin again reappears, evidently having chased the cat through a fresh mud puddle, and resumes his repast of the tidy under the piano. Emily shuts her notebook and rose. Not for any number of Mr. Towers would she prolong this interview. She looked like an angel but she was thinking terrible things. And she hated Miss Royal. Oh, how she hated her. Thank you. That will be all, she said, with the haughtiness quite equal to Miss Royal's. I'm sorry to have taken so much of your time. Good afternoon. She bowed slightly and went out to the hall. Miss Royal followed her to the parlour door. Hadn't you better take your dog, Miss Star? She asked sweetly. Emily paused in the act of shutting the outer door and looked at Miss Royal. Pardon me? I said, hadn't you better take your dog? My dog... Yes, he hasn't quite finished the tidy, to be sure, but you might take it along. It won't be much good to Aunt Angela now. He... he isn't my dog, gasped Emily. Not your dog. Whose dog is he then, said Miss Royal. I... I thought he was yours, your chow, 
said Emily, 